see you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapters 18 and 19 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the chair racks somewhere there in front of you. You should be able to hunt one down. And if you're not familiar with where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people with us each week who are unfamiliar with the Bible, and we're glad you're here because this is a place where we want you to get familiar with the Bible. And so uh, Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament. It's at the very beginning. If you start there, you can work your way over to chapter 18, and you'll find the spot uh, very soon. There are uh, always people that are with us each week that I've never had the opportunity to meet. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Matt Owen. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at our church, and if we haven't had an opportunity to meet, and you want to meet me, because I recognize there's probably a category of people that will pass on that, <laughs> everyone here understands that, uh, but if you'd like to meet, I'd like to meet you, uh, so I'll be around, come by, introduce yourself, uh, and we'll get to know each other a little bit better. <coughs> Genesis 18, as I said, is where we are going to be uh, spending our time today. And for the past uh, the past few weeks, we've had some breaks here and there, but we've been in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And last week, uh, if you were with us, I began talking about the very difficult story of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Very difficult story to both read and hear. But when we're looking at this story of, uh, of Abraham and Sarah, we see that they are meeting these three, uh, these three people that visit them with basically two messages. One of them is, one of uh, these three people is the Lord, and then there are two angelic messengers with him. And they have two messages. One of them is a very positive message, and one of them is a less than positive message. The first message that they have to deliver is that the promise that God had made to them some 25 years earlier was about to come true. They had been waiting 25 years for a son. Uh, and now Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And these angelic messengers show up to say that this time, next year, the thing which God had promised would come true. But that's not the only message that they have. We started looking at the other message last week, and that other message that these angelic messengers deliver is that the nearby cities, the nearby villages of Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their wickedness, are going to be destroyed by the Lord. Both of these messages have, a, have a, a crucial question hidden within them, or not hidden within them, it's there in plain sight, but both of these messages carry a question in them on which the point of the passage turns. When the messengers tell Abraham and Sarah that in spite of the fact that they are 190 years old prospectively, that they're going to have a baby next year, the question that is posed to them by the Lord is this, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that surfaces for us the point of that text, because the, 
The answer that we're meant to answer with, the answer, and the answer that they're meant to answer with is, is, of course not. God can do anything he wants and is able to do anything he wants. But then that we saw last week that there's a question on which this second message turns because when Abraham learns of the Lord's intentions to destroy these neighboring villages in which he has somebody important to him, a family member, his, his nephew, Lot, he asks the question of the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You could plug a, a different word in for just. You could plug in the word fair. Abraham is asking God what he's doing is, is just. Right, if it's fair. And I believe this passage of Scripture, as difficult as it is, is teaching for us in story form what the rest of the Bible teaches in the form of principle in a, in a multitude of other places. And that, that principle is this, regardless of how we feel about it at any given time, God does what is just. God always does what is just. And I said last week that there are two actions of God that we see in our text that are just, or, as I said, fair. The first one we started exploring last week is this, God is just in his demonstration of judgment. God is just or fair in his demonstration of judgment. And as we encounter God's judgment in the scriptures, and we see it throughout the Bible, we see it in, in a few particular areas where it is just where it is just very stark and out there for us to see. As we encounter it, it calls us to three responses. We started looking at those three responses to God's just judgment last week. I said last week in the first place, we must respond humbly to God's moral standards. And I'm going to resist the urge to re-preach that message to you, especially because now we've got kids back with us, and you definitely, some of you definitely don't want me to re-preach this to you. But... Regarding God's moral standards, I made the point last week that every single one of us, whether we consider ourselves to be secular people or religious people, work with moral standards. Every single one of us on planet Earth has a sense of what ought to be done and what ought not to be done. So Christian people, religious people, are not the only people with morals. The question is not whether we are going to have morals enough or not. The question is the basis of those morals. Are my morals rooted inside of me? And are they connected to the changing winds of the culture? Or is my standard of morality rooted in something that is timeless and outside of me? The Bible actually teaches that that our system of morals, what is right and wrong, is rooted in the very character of God himself. And so our responsibility as we encounter God's moral standards is to respond humbly to that by accepting it, receiving his moral standards for us as, as the way for us to flourish as human beings under God's design in the world in which he has designed us to live, 
but also to respond with grace to not demonize those who are not living in harmony with those standards. Okay? I'm still, can you tell I'm still resisting you to re-preach that message, okay? So if you didn't hear that, listen to it online because we're going to keep going. Remember, we're talking about our responses, three responses I think the Bible pulls from us response to the fact that God is just or fair in his demonstration of judgment. So here's the second way we respond. We must respond by wrestling with our own sense. What is just? We must respond by wrestling with our own sense of what is just. This is something that Abraham himself wrestles with in this section of scripture. We read it last week, but I want to read it again. Look with me at, verse, at chapter 18 in Genesis, and look down to verse 23. The word of the Lord says this in Genesis 18, 23. Then Abraham drew near, he's just received word that of, of God's intentions for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Says that the Bible says, and Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous? With the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fear is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust? Ashes. If we were to keep reading on in this passage, we would see that that, that recognition of Abraham, that he is but dust and ashes, he's, he's recognizing who it is that he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Lord of the universe, but not only is he speaking to the Lord of the universe, not only is he, is he, is he asking him questions about what is just and right and how God feels about the righteous and the wicked, but he's also going to use that to continue his negotiating. Having established an anchor point at 50, and having received a word from the Lord that he will not destroy it from 50, he decides to press his luck, as it were, and work his way down. And so he says, okay, what about 45? God says, yes, if there's 45 there, okay, we're doing good so far. What about 40? And then he moves down to 30. And then he moves down to 20. And then he moves down to 10. 10. And the Lord said, if I find 10 righteous people in that city, I will spare the whole city on account of the 10. And what should absolutely fascinate you about this text that we've just read together this morning is that God is allowing a human to negotiate with him. 
That's fascinating to me. Abraham recognizes his field, the, the gap between himself and the Lord. He recognizes that he's walking on thin ice, but he says things like to the Lord, like, far be it from you to do such a thing like that. What is Abraham wrestling with here? He's wrestling with his own sense of justice and God's sense and struggling to calibrate the two. And God could have just said to Abraham, man, you better know your place. Should not the judge, I, I'm the judge, and I, yes, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. It is your place to listen and not question and my place to do. And God could have said that. God, it would have been God's rights to say that. But I think what God is doing here is he is allowing Abraham to explore his heart. Abraham has things about the Lord that he knows to be true, and he has God's intention which he knows to be true, and Abraham is trying to figure it out. He's trying to understand how these things go together. Now, if you were here at our church last year, you may have been one of the many people who read a book together that we read as a church called Gentle and Lowly. And in that book, Gentle and Lowly, in one of the chapters there, we saw uh, that some Christians of old, centuries ago, have spoken of God's judgment as his strange work, and that's using old language that we don't use anymore today, but Jonathan Edwards is a theologian who was quoted in that, and Edwards says this, he says, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He is abounding, uh, uh, I've lost my place. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Now, when Edwards and others spoke of judgment as God's strange work, they were not speaking of judgment as, as his wrong work, but what they were saying is that, is that God delights to bless in a way that he does not delight to judge. And we can see this in the Bible if our eyes are open to it. But so many times we're reading the Bible and we have a misconception of God. And so we come to the Bible seeing the things over and over again that we expect to see and not seeing the things that are actually there. Just this week, I encountered Joel chapter 2. And in Joel chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter speaks of, of this coming day of judgment that is going to be a day of thick darkness. It is going to be a day of gloom. The prophet Joel goes through all of these things, a word of the Lord of, of judgment that is coming. And yet when we get to verse 12, the Lord is saying, but even now I will relent if you will turn from your ways. 
There's a sense in which God's judgment, saints of old have recognized, is his strange work, but the Bible is clear about God's judgment. It is just, it's fair, it's right, and it is good. problem with us is sometimes we are made uncomfortable by it. Because we want a God that is more benign oftentimes. We want a God that we feel like we don't have to apologize for. We want a, we want a God who is grandfatherly only. An author and a pastor by the name of Scott Saul, somebody here at church sent me an article by him this week in connection with this. But in this article, he contends, as he's thinking about God's judgment and writing about God's judgment, he contends that we need a God who deals with bullies. And he quotes a theologian, Miroslav Wolf, who writes this as he is, is thinking about the atrocities of war and writing about Christian's response to the atrocities of war in Eastern Europe. Wolf says this, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages who have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis about God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. I think he's got a word for us. We need a God whose justice is able to stand up to the atrocities that we are capable of committing against each other. God's judgment then is his strange work, but it is a work that we need, a work that his just character demands. But we are, like Abraham, invited to wrestle, calibrate our sense of justice and fairness, with the standard of God's. And that's something we are invited as followers of Jesus into. Okay. We're considering the fact that God is just in his demonstration of judgments, his judgments, and we're talking about our responses to that. And I want to give us then a third way that we respond to God's just judgments. It's this. We must receive this warning about God's judgments. Here's why I say that. Sometimes there's a misconception that the God of the Old Testament is one way, and Jesus is another way. And Jesus is almost like the good cop, and the God of the Old Testament is the bad cop. We sometimes read the Bible that way as if 
there was some sort of difference between the members of the Trinity that the Bible actually tells us are completely aligned and unchanging. Jesus himself referred to the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah on numerous occasions in his earthly ministry. I don't know if you were aware of that or not, but Jesus brings Sodom and Gomorrah up on numerous occasions. And I've got just time for one to share with you. But Jesus used the story of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate the unexpected quickness of a future day of judgment that is yet to come. So, so Jesus says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember the swiftness of the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah? There is another day of judgment coming, and so there is a warning to repent. Let me read his words to you in Luke 17. It will also be on the screen behind me. But Jesus says this in Luke 17, beginning in verse 28. He says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, and things were going on. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus, if you're not familiar with the way Jesus talks, Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Okay, so he's talking about himself. The judgment that's coming is one that he is going to execute, in other words. Verse 31, he says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus himself is promising that there is going to be a future day coming when he will return in judgment. And he's warning his hearers that that day will take humanity by as much surprise as it took the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah by surprise. And furthermore, Jesus taught that we ought to remember Lot's wife. And if you recall, and the angels are there with Lot and his daughters and his wife, and they're urging them to come out of the city. One of the instructions that they give them, they, they literally tell them to run for the hills. And part of the instructions that they give them when they tell them to run for the hills is don't look back. And yet in, in, in the maelstrom of judgment that is raining down and in the, their hurry to get out, Lot's wife, looks back, and the Bible tells us that she becomes, uh, she turns into a pillar of salt. And don't let the fact that it's salt to, uh, hang you up on, well, what is the significance of salt, my salt? I, I'm not totally sure. I'm sure there's a lot of theories out there. She was calcified. She's turned to stone in her turning to look back at Sodom. And there are many people who have made this observation throughout the years 
that, that Lot and his wife were no longer living in the heart of Sodom, but Sodom remained in their hearts. Mrs. Lot wanted Sodom, even though Sodom was slowly killing her, even though Sodom was currently being judged, and it ultimately took her life. And that's when Jesus says the words at the end of the story that I want us to to hear this morning. Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Sometimes, verses strike you afresh and anew. I would guess that if you're a Christian, you have probably heard that verse many times. And there are, Jesus taught that on numerous occasions. The Gospels all have, have different uh, 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 times when Jesus taught that principle. But hearing it in connection to Lot's life really stuck out to me as I was preparing this sermon over the course of the past few weeks. Because when we think about, uh, oftentimes when we think about being willing to lose one's life, there are different ways that we think about it, and none of those things are necessarily wrong. So you could talk about that, you could talk about that, that idea of losing one's life in the sense of martyrdom. To follow Jesus, we sometimes have to be willing to lose our lives. We don't hold our lives dear for the sake of following Jesus. Sometimes I think that we read a verse like that and our assumption is that to follow Jesus, in fact, I, I hear this with some frequency, the, the idea that comes out that if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I have to give up everything I love about my life. Because what G one of Jesus' favorite things to do is when you start following him, is he wants you to do all the things that you don't want to do. And it's some kind of test. So if I'm good at this, this, and this, and I love doing this, this, and this, and Jesus is going to call me to do the exact opposite of all those things, just to test me. That's not it. But think about Jesus' words that he's just spoken here about losing one's life, specifically in connection to Lot's wife. What is she looking back and mourning? She is mourning a way of life that is slipping out of her hands as she runs. She is mourning a way of life that is currently having fire rained down on her. She wanted that way of life. And that's why Jesus uses it as an object lesson. Jesus is warning us about worldly living. 
worldly values. And as Christians, it is easy for us to become far too comfortable inside. And there may be aspects of Sodom that we find distasteful. There may be aspects of Sodom that, that we would say, well, that's wrong. That, that's a way that we shouldn't live. And yet, Christian people who can point out different pieces of, of culture in Sodom and say, that is wrong and that is wrong, are the same people who are desperately in love with Sodom's way of living. And I'll put up with all of that because it gives me a way of life that is very comfortable to me and one that I very much wish to pursue. Those who follow Jesus have to let go of their investment in Sodom. We have to let go of the worldly values Pursuing in our cities while we decry certain aspects of the culture to follow others that are just as out of step with Jesus' ways. And so Jesus tells us this morning if you are intent on preserving your way of life here, The only way for you to really live is to let go of that way of life. To let go of the values and the culture of Sodom. And in letting go, that life, which is so dear and so important, you actually find it. Okay. So we've seen Talking about the fact that God does what is just. We've seen that God is just in his demonstration of judgment. But now I want to flip it around. And I want us to see in the second place that God is just in his demonstration of mercy. God is just and fair in his demonstration of mercy. We have assumptions that we bring to the table when we come to a passage like this, and it's easy to see why we would come by those assumptions, because this is, after all, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the story of judgment. The, the headline that we put over this passage, the headline that you probably have in your Bibles, has something about the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. But there are threads of mercy running through this passage that I want you to see. For one thing, as wicked as Sodom is, God chooses in his freedom to listen to Abraham and tells Abraham that he will have mercy on the entire wicked city if just ten righteous people are found. That's significant. Secondly, God intends to show mercy to Lot and his family in spite of 
the way that he has interwoven himself into that culture and into that way of living. We look at it and say, well, Lot's no better than the rest of them. And in many respects, that's true. And yet God intends to show him mercy. Thirdly, God is willing to show mercy to Lot's sons-in-law. So they're in that they're in that engagement period with his two daughters where they haven't they're they're not fully together yet, and yet they're still spoken of as sons-in-law, and, and and the angels give Lot the opportunity to go to these men who are important to their family so that they too can be rescued from the wrath that's to come. They decline. Fourthly, God forcibly removes Lot and his family from Sodom for their protection. So I just want to, I want to highlight those threads of mercy that are in this passage that we might miss because of the other things that are going on. And I want to highlight a couple features of God's just, fair mercy in this passage. I want to highlight two features for you. The first one is this. God's just mercy is irresistible. God's just mercy is irresistible. Let me show this to you. If you're there in Genesis, go to, look at, with me at chapter 19, beginning in verse 15. Verse 15, the Bible says, As, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Dude, you are everything that could possibly be done to rescue you, and you are still resisting it. Oh no, my lords. Behold, your, if your servant has found favor in your sight, you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. And so he asks to go to an alternate location. To which the angels say, fine, go there. There are two people negotiating in this passage. Abraham is negotiating for God's mercy. Lot is still negotiating about where he's going to go and what exactly this is going to look like. What's interesting to me about this passage is that people will, will often say sometimes that God never goes against our wills. You will have heard that said. And, and I want to say to you, I don't think the Bible says that. The Bible, over and over again, shows us a God 
who overcomes the stubborn sinfulness of our wills. We think it sounds good to say, well, God will never, God will never go against my will. What if your will's always wrong? You want God to go against it now? you have a young preschool child after the service today that decides that they want to go out into Blanding Boulevard to play because there's some flat space there. And you say, hey, come on out of Blanding Boulevard. That's not a wise place to play. And your preschooler says, eh, I'm good. What do you as a parent do? Far be it from me to go against what my child wants to do. No, you're probably going to run out there and forcibly remove them from certain death and oncoming traffic. To, to refuse to do that is not loving, nor is it merciful. You overcome your child's desires for your child's own good. God oftentimes overcomes our stubborn, sinful, resistant wills in order that he might show us mercy. And trust me, you don't want it any other way. Though Lot and his family are continuing to drag their feet about being taken out of Sodom, I just think that phrase... Is, is amazing in verse uh, uh, verse uh, 16. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. It was an act of mercy for the Lord to come up to them and say, okay, we're going now, and grab them and pull them to safety. God's mercy is often coercive. I thank God that it is. Otherwise, we would be left in the room, road with certain doom coming. Can anybody here testify to the fact that you received a coercive mercy? That you wanted to go your own way and you just kept encountering a God who would not let you God. That, ought to, that ought to cause a gratitude to well up in our hearts. An old song, oh Lord, I would not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still be had you not chosen me. Not only does that fill our, ought, ought that to fill our hearts with gratitude, but it ought to fill our hearts with hope. One of the things that I pray for people in my life who seem to be running the exact opposite direction of Jesus is that God would transgress their will and show them grace. For the people in your life who are running from Jesus, you pray that 
God would take them by the hand and be merciful to them and pull them to safety. God's just, fair mercy is irresistible. And I also want us to see the second feature of his mercy. God's just mercy is shown through intercession. It's shown to us through intercession. What we see here is Abraham foreshadowing the work of Jesus. How does Abraham foreshadow the work of Jesus? He intercedes for others. In fact, Abraham gets it to a point where, where the Lord promises him that if he finds just ten people in this city, he will spare the whole city on account of just ten righteous ones. We ought to have all sorts of alarms and bells going off in our minds. We've seen this kind of thing later in the story, right? Because later in the overall Bible story, the Bible tells us that God shows mercy to sinners on account of just one righteous man, Jesus Christ. Because of the intercessory work of just one righteous man, the Bible tells us the many will be made righteous. And when God shows mercy to sinful people, he is not doing so at the expense of his justice. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 that God can be just and fair and still show mercy because the intercessory work of Christ is interceding on behalf of sinners is not based on a magic wand saying, okay, I'll look the other way. His intercessory work is based on his substitutionary work. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The intercessory work that Christ does on our behalf is not, Father, let them slide. The intercessory work that Christ does on our behalf is to put himself upon the cross and bear the wrath of God against sin a thousand Sodom and Gomorrahs. So that you and I can be pulled by the hand and led to safety, God being merciful. God is just and fair in his demonstration of mercy because his judgment for those sins has been poured out on his son at the cross who bears our punishment in our place. So let me end this way. I want to speak a word to those here with us this morning who may not be followers of Jesus. And it may be that some of the things that we've talked about this week and last week in the Bible are, are troubling to you. Maybe you're one of those people we talked about last week that says, I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank. 
And I just, want to, I just want to push back on that a little bit and say, first of all, we Christians are trying to understand these things too. We also try to calibrate our sense of justice and fairness with God. So it's not like we've got it all figured out and tied up with a bow. But I will say this to you. You are never going to come to God if the criterion for coming to God is understanding perfectly everything that he does in his universe. If the criteria is when I can explain and justify every one of his actions satisfactorily for myself, then I'll be there. See ya. How could any of us as finite human beings who are a blip on the timeline of existence possibly wrap our minds up? You've got, if you wait until it all fits together perfectly, you will always wait. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ask those questions. Those questions are important, and Christian people have spent lots of time exploring those questions, giving answers to those questions, writing about those questions, and there are all kinds of things to pursue. But the Bible is... The Bible speaks in multiple places of the reality of God's judgment. And if you're here this morning apart from Christ, my hope is that you hear that word. Because God's judgment is real. Jesus talked about it. But I also want you to hear this. God's judgment is his strange work. He delights in showing mercy to those who bow the knee to King Jesus and repent of their sins. He absolutely delights in saving sinners. So the invitation for you this morning is to not wait until you can explain it all. To come to Jesus Say things like, I got questions, but I'm here. I repent. And I believe that what you have accomplished on the cross is enough to forgive me of my sins. And I tell you, we tell you, if you'll come to him that way, he will start doing the work that revolutionizes your heart and opens your eyes. Come and put your faith in the one who gave his son, the righteous one, to the unrighteous, like us. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered difficult but good things over the past couple of weeks. We have discussed things that have been great challenges to us, things that have spurred us to further questions. I pray that you would use your word as it's been preached to, by your spirit, target our hearts. If there are some followers of Jesus here this morning who are in love with their way of life, worldly values, I pray that you would give us hearts to repent and turn away.
because finally, for those who are running from Jesus right now in our lives, we pray that you would take them by the hand and show them mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are well and up in gratitude for the mercy that you've shown to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.